You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Remorse is not the same thing as repentance. Many people are sorry for the things that they have done, but they don't turn back to Christ to believe in Him. God requires not remorse. God requires repentance for forgiveness of sins. You have to repent from evil deeds. You have to look at yourself when you're in sin and not just say, I don't like myself. I don't like the way I am. I'm sorry for how my life became the way it is now. Peter had faith and conviction in the weight and value of the Word of God, so much so that he depended on it as he led the people. Do you have this kind of faith in what God has told you through the Bible? Do you stake your life and words on its truth? The only effective leader, as Peter discovered, was the one that placed himself under the authority of Jesus. Dear ones, don't just be sorry for your past mistakes, but do a complete turnaround and let God lead your days as Pastor Tom shares with us today. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 1 as he continues his message, Learning from Early Disciples. Sure enough, according to Luke chapter 22 and verse 3, Satan did probably circle that group of disciples several times looking for the weak link. Where can I attack? He is, after all, Satanas, the adversary. He is the devil, the slanderer. And it actually says in Luke 22, 3, that Satan entered into Judas. People ask sometimes, do you take that literally? Did he actually indwell Judas? I think so. I think Satan is always around attempting to thwart God's purposes. I mean, the Son of God is on earth. What better place than to go after the disciples around him? Satan craftily attempted to use Judas, a disingenuous disciple. Satan figured that out. Judas was pilfering from the money bag all the way along. By the way, he volunteered to be the treasurer so he could just pilfer, right? He was always after the money. Sometimes people feel sorry for Judas. Do not feel sorry for Judas. He was always after the money. And Satan used Judas to get on the inside of the apostolic band so he could carry out his dastardly deeds and betray and hurt Christ and hurt Christ's movement. Beloved, you know that God never lets that happen. You know that God is always five steps ahead, right? Later, after the Holy Spirit arrived, Paul would write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. That is is what you are. And he said that to the Corinthian church. God is always several steps ahead of the father of lies. There is a lot that leaders can learn from this. Problems that the church faces must be faced with optimism and must be faced with confidence, for God is at work in his church. It is not our church. A step backward may actually be a step forward as God designs it. God causes all things to what? Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know how he does it. Nevertheless, another lesson. Every disciple must be warned according to Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the methoduos of the devil, the methods, the schemes 
I like the King James, the wiles of the devil. What Peter is saying is that replacing Judas is not an obstacle too difficult to overcome. It is an opportunity to see God continue to move forward his agenda. Peter very wisely in verse 16 says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. You look that up, it's a little Greek word, de, and it means divine necessity. It had to happen. There was necessity to the program of God. God doesn't tell us everything. He says, you walk, I'll take care of what has to happen. Events were not just happening. They were not just random. There was a God in control moving things forward, and some of those things were going to be very hard. Church life also now is not random. Judas's betrayal of Christ was no embarrassment to the program of God. Peter says God is the one directing. Actually, if you glance forward at chapter 2 into Peter's sermon and go all the way to verse 23, Acts 2.23, you could see Peter making this point about the sovereignty of God along with the uh, betrayal of Christ. Verse 23 It says, this man, he's talking about Christ, delivered over by, and you'd expect them to write in there, Judas, the traitor. And he doesn't. He says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God had it all predetermined. Christ was going to be betrayed, delivered over. Nevertheless, every human being is responsible for their actions. Notice he indicts the Jews and he said, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They're still responsible for their act. Even though God's plan is at work and works through the choices of human beings, the people are responsible for their choices. It's fascinating. God is at work. God predetermined the betrayal of Christ. God used the evil decision of Judas Iscariot to bring about your salvation and my salvation. It's amazing. God's sovereignty does not run around the choices of men. God's sovereignty runs through the very choices of men. Men make choices and they choose what God had already predestined to happen. It's amazing. Even Satan making his choices, thinking he had trapped the group, thinking he was so crafty, fell into the very trap of God to accomplish what God wanted to have happen. God foretold the betrayal of Judas by the mouth of David. This is a thousand years before this event. A thousand years. Verse 16, I think, look at it. It's one of the preeminent verses in all of the Bible for understanding biblical inspiration. You know this if you've taken our bibliology class. But here Peter says... The Holy Spirit spoke, or the Holy Spirit foretold by what? The mouth of David. Holy Spirit, David. Holy Spirit speaking, David, mouth. Mouth speaking. It just goes together. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. What is biblical inspiration? There was a human spokesperson, David, but the words that came out were God's, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did the speaking. David's mouth did the moving. The message, the words, the sentences were all chosen by God, the Holy Spirit. The vocal cords and the writing pen were David's. It's amazing. When people ask, what does it mean that the Bible is inspired? There it is. Every message of Scripture originated with the divine and was spoken through the human. When someone says, but the Bible's a human book, we say, so, it's a divine book also. 
Isn't that what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, right? All scripture is what? Inspired by God. Theonoustos, breathed out by God. The very breath of God is what this book is. The Bible is not just inspired. The Bible is verbally inspired. Verbal inspiration refers to the intensity of Scripture's inspiration. We say the Bible is is inspired in a plenary sense. What does that mean? It means all of it, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, 21, I think. The whole thing is inspired. But it's also, how deeply is it inspired? Is it just kind of some of the ideas in the Bible that are inspired? Does it just kind of give us a nice warm feeling when we read the Bible? And the answer to this is the Bible is so inspired, so intensely inspired, it goes down to the very choice of the words that God had. You can rely on every corner, every nook and cranny of Scripture. It's all from God. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Prophets didn't sit down one day and say, You know what? I feel creative this morning. I'm going to write a scripture. I'm going to write, I'm going to write a scripture that people are going to be believing and obeying for thousands of years. This is exciting. They never happened that way. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All they did was hoist their sail up and the wind of the Holy Spirit poured into there and blew them across the water and said exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to say. Did Jesus have a high view of Scripture himself? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to have a high view of Scripture. He himself quoted Matthew 4.4 when he was being tempted by the devil. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on, listen, every word, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he was talking about Scripture. Paul, when he wrote letters, had people opposing him. And he decided to deal with that in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. He said, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or a spiritual, I like how he writes that because there are lots of people that think they're spiritual, right? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or a spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Pretty direct. Every scripture has two authors, yet one meaning. We call that the confluence of Scripture. It's both God's work and man's part. And they happen simultaneously in some mystery we call inspiration. The divine element never eliminated the human vocabulary and the human expression and the way a human liked to organize their own words and their own thoughts. Nor did the human element trump Or water down the divine element. But the divine element always controlled the human and ensured no errors, no distortion ever crept into the written text. Men make mistakes. Men moved by God's Holy Spirit make no mistakes. Thomas A. Thomas in his booklet on bibliology talked about inspiration this way. Every word of the scriptures is exactly that word which the Holy Spirit of God intended should be there. Every word is important. Not a one is superfluous. For each word is inspired of God. There's a teaching out there that the Bible's not the word of God, but it kind of contains the word of God. You can kind of hunt and peck inside of it, and you can find a few morsels that you can call God's word. That is not biblical inspiration. 
The Bible is not a faint reflection of God's message to the ancient people and we got to try to understand it and modernize it. No, it is the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And Peter demonstrates that. He demonstrates his confidence. He is a disciple of Christ and his view of Scripture is the same view of Scripture that Christ had. And so is all of the other apostles. There would have been no argument among the disciples. Is the Bible fully authoritative? Of course. Is the Bible inerrant? Of course. Is the Bible powerful and life transforming? Of course. Bibliology would have been simple there. Now, besides being faith-filled, Peter also gave the right amount of details to the brethren for guidance sake. He told them as much as they needed to know. Look at verses 18 and 19. He added details. This is a parenthetical statement, by the way, that Luke is making here in 18 and 19, but then he goes on to add his own details. But verses 18 and 19 are parenthetical, just to help the reader out. It says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he, Judas, burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, translated field of blood. So from the money that Judas got for betraying Christ, there was a field that was acquired. The field was called Hakodama, field of blood. The name probably is in recognition of the guilty blood that was shed on the rocks that were there. And even the man of innocent blood whom Judas betrayed. This event was so well known in Jerusalem in other words, this wasn't just a side thing. This event was so well known in Jerusalem, the field actually got a title, an Aramaic name attached to it. In fact, Matthew mentions the same tradition of the naming of this field. Matthew chapter 27 actually has greater detail about all of that. It lets us know that Judas did not himself make the purchase of the field. Rather, the priests made the purchase of this field in his honor. How disgusting. In Matthew 27, verses 3 and following, it says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed Christ, saw that he had been condemned, saw that Christ had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they, the priests and the elders, said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, This is so hypocritical, it's disgusting. It is not lawful. They're worried about being lawful. It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Judas had remorse, and he flung the money, the silver pieces, into the temple. The priests gathered them all up, and they went and bought this field. And it became so well known, it was given the title, Field of Blood. I know that many have become confused with Peter's explanation of what happened to Judas here because it appears that this account of Judas's death contradicts the account given by Matthew, which notes that Judas went out and hung himself. The two accounts are not irreconcilable, though. If you give the benefit of the doubt to the first century eyewitnesses, you will see that they are complementary, not contradictory. 
There were many cliffs and overhangs around Jerusalem in that rugged and mountainous terrain. If Judas were to go out and hang himself on a tree, it's hard to find a tree, first of all. But it's quite probable that one of the branches extended out over a cliff or over a gully or even a high overhang of some kind. The simplest harmony of the two accounts, which many people have done, is that the branch that Judas hung himself on after his body had been on it for a period of time got weak and broke and his body tumbled below and burst on some sharp rocks and the blood spilled all over the place. Norman Geisler, in his book called When Critics Ask, it harmonizes a lot of these so-called contradictions in the Bible, actually explains it that way. It is also possible in a distraught condition, he didn't tie the rope all that well. And there's a lot of ways of harmonizing these. Other people have other possibilities to, you know, to explain it. The two accounts, just like two eyewitnesses of an event, give an incomplete but complementary picture in what put together we have an understanding of what happened. And Judas killed himself. Judas committed suicide. Beloved, don't think that small sins don't lead to tremendously bad outcomes. It starts somewhere. It started with his greed. It started with his lying. It started with him pilfering from the bag. And look where it ends. He realized the wrong that he had done. And Judas destroyed himself. That's what sin does. It destroys. Do not think of Judas as being repentant. Remorse for sin is not repentance from sin. Repentance from sin starts with remorse, but a godly remorse brings a person back to Christ, right? Brings them back to Christ and said, I have sinned and I am repentant and I want to change. Feeling sorry for bad decisions is not repentance, is not pleasing to God. Remorse is not the same thing as repentance. Many people are sorry for the things that they have done, but they don't turn back to Christ to believe in Him. God requires not remorse. God requires repentance for forgiveness of sins. You have to repent from evil deeds. You have to look at yourself when you're in sin and not just say, I don't like myself. I don't like the way I am. I'm sorry for how my life became the way it is now. That's not good enough. That's where Judas was. You have to say, and I am willing to change. I am willing to humble myself and be retaught. And I'm willing to change it until you have that. You can't experience the forgiveness of God and the power of God. God requires repentance from evil deeds, not mere sorrow, not regret. Many will die in hell and have sorrow for eternity. Remorse in and of itself leads no one to the life of God. You can see that with Judas. His remorse without repentance led him to a tree and to suicide. Suicide is the act of a man who no longer has any hope for living. And he murders himself. Suicide does not come from faith in the promises of God. Men and women of God in the Bible got discouraged. Sometimes they got depressed. And they were real men and women of God who had faith, but they never took their lives. Elijah said, God, I am so depressed, you kill me. 
Jonah was so angry, it led into his depression, and he said, God, you take my life. But they wouldn't take their own life. In faith, they still submitted their circumstances to God, even while they uttered their complaints. Suicide does not come from a repentant sinner, but a depressed and a hopeless unbeliever. There is no hope in suicide. Judas died without hope. Judas died without salvation. His body plunged onto the sharp rocks below, and his soul was pulled down into torturous Hades, where he has been burning for 2,000 years. Judas was no believer in Jesus Christ. He was a false disciple. He exemplified the depth of apostasy on earth the same way that Satan demonstrated the pinnacle of apostasy when he left the abode of God in heaven. Judas was inside the very circle of the apostles of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and then Judas abandoned following Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Judas was not forced into betrayal. Judas never made a decision apart from his own will. Judas had a real choice, and Judas made that choice. And look down at verse 25. It shows that Judas went to his own place. Judas descended down into Hades to go from the band of privileged apostles who would reign in Israel and be exalted for all of eternity to that place is surely the greatest human failure ever. Do you know that the scripture never in any location encourages us to feel sorry for Judas? John MacArthur, who I think did his master's thesis on Judas Iscariot. What kind of a topic is that to do your master's thesis on, you know? But he knows his life well, wrote this. Judas represents the greatest example of wasted opportunity in all of history. He had the rare privilege given to only 12 men of living and ministering with Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for more than three years. He had the same convincing, overwhelming opportunity to come to faith in him as the eleven did. Yet his motives for following Jesus were never anything but selfish. He no doubt shared the common Jewish hope that Messiah would deliver the nation from the yoke of the hated Romans when it became obvious that was not Jesus' plan and he would not get the wealth and power he wanted. Judas decided to cut his losses and get out with whatever he could salvage. Betraying the incarnate Son of God to the authorities for a paltry sum seemed a way to gain some compensation. Driven by disappointment and greed, this most tragic of all men squandered inestimable privilege. Betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and damned his soul to hell. End quote. But the important thing that Peter is bringing out here. All of this was by the plan of God. God is amazing in his sovereignty, is he not? God's plan worked through Judas's real choice. And that meant everything was still on target on earth. For God was orchestrating all events. And I think in that, every disciple, in every age, no matter their trials or circumstances, can take comfort and rest even while we work and build a movement for God. Father, we thank you for this enlightening text. And we know and trust that in your sovereignty, you had us go over this text at this time. 
And we would pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to remain aware of your work among us, that you will help us to put up the shield of faith and wear the armor of God and trust in your sovereignty, that we will fear you and fear disobeying your commandments. And Father, that you will protect Hope Bible Church as you have already done and guide us, Lord, into the future. We pray it for the sake of your Son and the testimony that gives him glory. Amen. I find it very helpful to have reminders, reminders that are true and speak to life experiences. This is what Peter did as he reminded those that knew of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas that nothing's too big for God. Take comfort in that truth, friends. Peter led the people right to the Word of God because Jesus himself placed value on it by quoting it. This is the authority in which a good leader operates, as Pastor Tom told us today. Discover Hope is a listener-supported ministry, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be a part of sharing the gospel message. Would you join us in praying for our listeners? Pray that the love and grace of Jesus will be evident in each new broadcast, and that many would come to know the hope of salvation. Thanks for praying. If you feel led to contribute financially to this ministry as well, you can do so by visiting hopebible.org and clicking the Giving tab at the top of the page. We appreciate every amount given and use it to continue producing the messages of Pastor Tom leak that you hear on Discover Hope. Aren't you glad you're not the only one who has messed up or who has had moments of doubt? How about those times where you trusted the advice of wise counsel or was able to help someone in need? We have so many great examples of leaders from the Bible to show us how they did life as they followed Jesus. So be sure to tune in next week as Pastor Tom explains in more detail the qualities of a leader and the lessons we can learn. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.